Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. I tell you, I have so much on my heart this morning that I want to say, and I know I can't say it all today. There are just a lot of, a lot of different things. And I, I'm just, believe with me right now for utterance, that I'll just say what needs to be said and that the Spirit of God will work with us today. Amen. In the anointing upon me, but also the corporate anointing in the church. We know that we are individually temples of the Holy Spirit. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but this local church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And just like he indwells each one of us, he indwells this body collectively, distinctively, this body. Glory to God. And he indwells us so that he can fill us. Amen. It's one thing to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit yourself. It's another thing to be filled with the Spirit. The the Spirit-filled life is more dramatic than the non-Spirit-filled life. Amen. More glorious, more effective, more of everything. Well, the Spirit-filled church is is more glorious than a non-Spirit-filled church. Amen. Hallelujah. And, and being filled with the Spirit is not sort of a, a, a static experience that you experience one time and, you know, you notch that off, you know, and you've got that one down. No, being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing thing. Are you out there today? Amen. won't hurt my feelings to say amen. You won't embarrass me. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. So we've been talking about the Holy Spirit and the importance of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we pointed out that the traditional church, uh, the modern church, has uh, taken away much of the benefit of the Holy Spirit by denying a lot of what he's been sent to do. Jesus made this statement. Well, go, go over there to, to John 14. I want to read a couple of verses there and then, and then the one I was going to read or quote in, in uh, the 16th chapter. So John 14, and let's look at verses... John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you forlorn and desolate and on your own in this world. He said, I will come to you. Well, he didn't come back physically. He hasn't yet. He will one day. But he came back to indwell us through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and notice he said, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter, another helper. 
Now, Jesus said these words, and, and where we're going to read next in the 16th chapter, he, he spoke these words on the night that he was betrayed. And then right after his crucifixion and his resurrection, just before he left and was ascended into heaven, uh, he spoke more about the Holy Ghost. But here on the night that he was betrayed, turn over to the 16th chapter. All of this is one discourse. And in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I depart, I will send him to you. He said, it's better for me to go than to stay. Because if I stay, you, you can't receive the helper. He won't come. But if I leave, he'll be sent to you. So he's telling us that, that the advent of the Holy Spirit is the most important thing for a believer. Amen. Now, and, and he referred to this as the promise of the Father. It's interesting to me that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, Mark's gospel, uh, he, only, he only took three verses to uh, relate the ministry of John the Baptist as the, as the baptizer when he went to, uh, out to the wilderness baptizing uh, and preaching repentance. Mark only gave three verses. Matthew, I think, gave 17 verses, if I remember right. Luke gave 22 verses to that episode. John, I think, devoted... Uh, 18 verses, I think. So Mark didn't really cover very much, but all three of the others, in all three accounts, Jesus talked about that, well, let's go to, to Matthew's gospel and look what he said, and then we'll read it in Luke's gospel as well. Matthew, and let's look at the, in the third chapter We know that uh, he went into the wilderness, we would say out in the country, preaching repentance of sin, repentance from sin, and was baptizing them, a baptism of repentance. And in verse 11, they were asking, you know, at this point, are you the one that should come? Are you the Messiah? In verse 11, he said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, that's in Matthew's gospel. In Luke's gospel, turn over to chapter 3. John answered in verse 16. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, if you turn over to John's gospel in his account, John chapter 1.
It says in verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, this account in John's gospel is actually not the earliest account. In Matthew and Luke and a little bit in Mark, it records when Jesus first went out and preached the baptism of repentance and people came to him and he was baptized. This account is on another day. This has, this has already taken place. If you, if you read it all and piece it de- together, you'll see that what was, what was spoken of in Matthew and Mark and Luke has already taken place. That's why the Jews came to him because he had come from obscurity out into the wilderness preaching uh, 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 repentance from sin. And people from all Jerusalem and Judea and all around the Jordan were flocking to him. They were confessing their sins. He was baptizing them. And it got the attention of the Pharisees, the scribes, and and the religious people. So uh, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites for Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him saying, why then do you baptize? See, he had already been baptizing. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in basically... uh, 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 Bethany, outside Bethany, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, so this is even the following day, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me for he was before me. Now this was the first time that John identified Jesus. John didn't point Jesus out to the crowd when he he baptized Jesus. He made note of him, but this this is later, a couple of days later, he points him out and he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. He's telling what had happened previously. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, when he said, I did not know him, uh, he's, probably, he's probably talking 
from a spiritual point of view. Because Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, was very old. Remember the story of Zechariah and, 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 uh, and Elizabeth. And when Gabriel appeared to Mary, Jesus' mother, and told her that she was going to give birth to the Son of God, he said to, to, to Mary, he said, it is now the sixth month with your relative, Elizabeth. And so Mary then, as soon as the angel left, she hurriedly uh, went out to the, into the countryside where Elizabeth and Zechariah lived, and, uh, and she spent three months with her until the time Elizabeth was due to give birth to John the Baptist. Then Elizabeth, I mean, uh, Mary came back home. So it says that, that, that Elizabeth was Mary's relative. She might have been uh, an aunt. She was probably, what, what is, now, my mother and, and my mother's mother was my grandmother, but my mother's sister was my aunt. Now, my children, my aunt becomes a second aunt or a, sec- a great aunt. Given the difference of age between Mary and Elizabeth, she was probably a great aunt. It's, not, it's unlikely she was a, uh, her grandmother's sister. Well, she would have been, wouldn't she? Yeah. She, anyway, I, I get confused with all of the second and third cousins and which constitutes, but she was probably a, a great aunt because of the difference of her age. But because of the connection for, with those two, it's, to me, it's very likely that John the Baptist knew of Jesus growing up. Now, they might not have been very close, but they could have been. They could have been, they were cousins or of sorts. And what cousins would they be? Second, third, second cousins? Something like that. Now, John, whenever Jesus came to John to be baptized, John said, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. So John knew something about Jesus. When it says here that he didn't know him, he didn't know him from the standpoint of the call of God that was on his life. He didn't know him from the standpoint of being the son of God, the lamb of God. He knew him evidently. If, he, if anyone knew Jesus growing up, they knew he was special. No sin in his life never disobedient to his parents, never said anything. That's going to be a remarkable child. Everybody never had a spanking. Wait a minute. He says he suffered everything that I have. Wait, wait a minute. No, anyway, it's maybe one thing he hasn't. So John evidently would have known about Jesus because he recognized him as a holy man when he walked up. But he gives us in John the key here. He said, I didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize said the one that you see the spirit descending upon and coming upon him, that's the son of God. That's the lamb of God. That's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and power. Now set all that to paint a picture so that you can see what was going on. Matthew 
doesn't record uh, John saying, the Lamb of God is coming. The one who comes after me is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. What he, what he told the people was, there's one coming after me who is greater than me. I'm not worthy to, to unfasten his sandals or to carry his sandals. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit in fire. That's recorded again in Luke. In John, we have the additional information. He said, behold, this is the Son of God. I, and he said, calls him the son of God. But then he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I'm not suggesting, so don't think I am. I'm not suggesting that his role as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is less than his role as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit because we know that would not be true. But it's still significant that that. The Bible records more about him saying he is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost than it does that he is the Lamb of God. I'm not saying that, that, that that's greater. I'm just saying that it's significant. So I look at it like this. As far as Jesus' mission, what he was called to do, John makes two declarations about Jesus. This is the Lamb of God. That's, that has to be first. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And secondly, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. That tells me that these two, these two missions of Christ were foremost in all that God sent Jesus to do. He sent Jesus, of course, to die on the cross as the Lamb of God. As pertaining to our salvation, his role as the Lamb of God is paramount. But as it pertains to our life as Christians, his role as the baptizer with the Holy Spirit is paramount. God sent Jesus to do two things, that is to save the world and then fill people with the Holy Spirit once they're saved. That tells us how significant and how important and how central to the theme and the plan of God for our lives is that we be born again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is not a side issue. It is not something to be relegated to another room, another night, another place. It is central to the plan of God for our lives. Jesus bore witness, or excuse me, John the Baptist bore witness to this twofold uh, 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 mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he identified it repeatedly. He, he identified it that day when he was baptizing, and that might have been many days, probably was. He identified it again when the Jews sent people to him as uh, in response to what was going on in the wilderness that he, had, he, had, he, had, he again identified Jesus as the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So he did it again and again. He emphasized by the Spirit of God. There are so many church groups, like I said, throughout modern church history that have de-emphasized the baptism of the Holy Spirit and stripped it of its, of its significance by claiming that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with the new birth. 
Much of the church world believes that when a person is saved, that they receive the Holy Spirit and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's not true. And by, excuse me, and by doing that, they have robbed the church of the benefit of not only being born again, but then in addition of that being filled with the Holy Spirit. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, we have already pointed out in previous services that in Acts chapter 1, we have, we have a retelling of Jesus' last words just before he ascended into heaven, his last instructions to his disciples. Now, at this point, they had already believed on him. He had been raised from the dead. They'd seen him. They believed on him. They had confessed him as Lord. Remember uh, 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 Thomas, I will not believe. And then he said, my Lord and my God. According to New Testament prescription, that's what it takes to be born again, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that he's been raised from the dead and confess him as Lord. So they were saved. And we have the testimony of a changed life. Before this happened, before Jesus appeared to them, we talked about this, I think, last week. They were uh, afraid. They were weeping and mourning. They were hiding. They were in unbelief when the women who, who first went to the tomb and found that he had been raised from the dead, when they came back and told them, the, the, the other 11 disciples, you know, Judas was not part of them now, told the other 11 apostles and disciples, they said, we, didn't, we, we won't believe that. They didn't believe her. When two other people... Uh, met him on the road to Emmaus and they came in and, and said, we've seen the Lord, he's risen. The Bible said they didn't believe him either. So they were full of doubt, they were full of fear, they were hiding, they were weeping and mourning, they were completely discouraged. But after they saw Jesus raised from the dead and believed on him, they were transformed. The Bible says they were continually in the temple thanking and praising God. That's the way the book of Luke uh, ends out, that they were continually in the temple. Well, that's a changed life. We also found out that they weren't just in the temple praising God. They were in the temple in one accord. And that's where they were found on the day of Pentecost. For 10 days, they spent their time in prayer and supplication and in one accord. For this motley crew, being in one accord for 10 days is an epic miracle. They had the evidence of a changed life. They had been born again. By every requirement of Scripture, both in precept and example, they had demonstrated a saved life. But Jesus said to them, now, do not, he had already told them to go into all the world. He said, but first, tarry, stay in Jerusalem. Do not depart from Jerusalem. He didn't say until you are born again. He said, until you are clothed with power from on high, till you're filled with the Spirit. So in the first chapter, I told you to go to chapter 2. Go back to chapter 1, verse number 4. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Remember Jesus said, we read it this morning in John chapter 14, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. That's the promise of the Father. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And, and it turns out that it was 10 days later. That's not many days, is it? Not many days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
And in verse eight, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now follow me over into the second chapter. We know in verse one, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, miracle of miracles. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we, without reading all the verses, we know what happened after that. The multitude was confused and, 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 and they heard them speaking in, in uh, their, their home dialects and languages and some were mocking and so forth. And uh, in verse 14, Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Hallelujah. I want to read the way I wrote this because it sounded good. Hallelujah. The purpose of the gospel is the salvation of men. But next to salvation, the most outstanding feature of the gospel era is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. That's what he said on the day of Pentecost. He said, this is what Joel prophesied. In the last days, I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh. In the Old Testament, the spirit only only came upon certain ones, the prophet, the priest, the king, and a few others. But Jesus, or John rather, made two declarations about Jesus and about his mission. This is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and this is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, to baptize us with the Holy Spirit is a fundamental reason why Jesus came. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Don't leave until you are clothed with this power. I send the promise of my Father on you and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. According to Mark chapter 16, gospel preaching is to be accompanied by signs wonders, and miracles. These signs, Jesus said, just before he left, these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. The gospel was supposed to be accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders. It goes on to say in the closing verses of that of the 16th chapter that they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. That is the plan of God. It has always been the plan of God. Amen. Now, much of the church world believes 
that when one is saved, he receives the Holy Spirit, and that's all there is to it. There isn't any other experience in the Holy Spirit beyond being born again. That's what much of the church world believes. They, they believe that the, the practice of speaking with other tongues is not a, a, uh, 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 a valid experience today. And they also believe that signs, wonders, and miracles are not for today. That people who uh, speak in tongues, speak, people who uh, cast out devils, lay hands on the sick, see miracles, signs, and wonders, that is all for a previous day. But Jesus said this would accompany the preaching of the gospel. Amen. And uh, go with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. I want you to notice what Paul said about his ministry. Well, just jump in the middle of this in verse 16. That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Notice what it takes to make the Gentiles obedient. In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. It is not possible to fully proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ without supernatural signs and wonders. I'm going to say it differently. Without signs and wonders and miracles and demonstrations of the Holy Spirit and the power of God, I don't care what someone preaches, it is not yet the full gospel. The gospel is not fully preached. Paul said, I have fully preached it, accompanied by these signs and wonders that God did through me. The Spirit-filled church needs to shake itself. I said the spirit-filled church needs to shake itself and shake itself from this lethargy and from this being satisfied with a form of power and denying the real power. Not giving any place for the real power of God, just talking about the power and having little sprinkles of power. The church is supposed to be, and the church age is supposed to be characterized with signs, wonders, and miracle that God does through his people. That's why we were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it's so easy to drift into sort of, sort of a satisfied Christian life where everything's just going nice. And, we, and we're enjoying blessing and God's hand is upon us and we're seeing good things and he's filling our days with good. But what about the world around us? We're living in the darkest time that, that men have ever known. 
Men and women on our planet have completely lost their way morally. And we've been given the task, we've been given the assignment of being being witnesses for Christ. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses. Not just do witnessing, but be witnesses. That means that our whole life is supposed to be a witness for the power of Christ. Our whole life should give evidence that Jesus is alive. So often Christianity is is very little different than any other religion. They have their claims. They have their beliefs. We have our claims. We have our beliefs. We share with people what we believe. They can either believe it or not believe it. There are other religions doing the same thing. They're sharing what they believe and they're getting converts. We're sharing what we believe. We're getting converts. It's not supposed to be that way. There's supposed to be a difference in how we share the gospel. There's supposed to be a difference in the effect. There's supposed to be a difference in the power. There's supposed to be a a difference in what causes people to obey the gospel. There there is supposed to be something in the gospel presentation by the church that is so compelling because there is evidence. Just like in the third and fourth chapter of of, of the book of Acts, when when the man was there who had been healed at the gate of the temple, he was over 40 years old and they could not deny that a notable miracle had taken place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thousands of people came to Christ because of that one miracle. Amen. We saw in, in cities that Peter went to and, 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 and uh, this, this man or uh, woman was healed and, and the whole city turned to the Lord. Dorcas was raised from the dead. Many believed because of that miracle. That's God's plan. Amen. And the Pentecostal church in the world, or at least in America, has been asleep at the switch. We like nice buildings, nice things, and we like to be respectable. And we don't want anybody messing up our services. People come into this house. People come into this building, I should say. They come into this building lost. People come into this building with demons harassing them oppressed in spirit and mind and body, they ought not leave that way. They ought not leave. They're not supposed to leave that way. When Jesus went into the synagogue and there was somebody there that that was demonized, uh, there was a confrontation. Amen. We, church, need to seek God. That was a weak response. I said, the church needs to seek God. These things belong to us. These things have been given, but we have to stir ourselves up to lay hold of these things or they're never going to happen. Amen. I thank God for all that he's done, but there's so much more he wants to do. There's so much more he needs to do. Glory to God. Hallelujah. The church today 
the whole church, not just Pentecostal churches, not just spirit-filled churches, not just charismatic or so forth, needs this. But when you have, when you have entire groups that deny the power of God, they need more than I'm addressing here. What I'm talking about is people who know the power of God, know what the will of God is, know what the, what the uh, commission is, know that these things belong to us. When we don't see them, we ought to be disturbed. When we don't see them in a measure that, is, that, that indicates that God is at work among us all the time. If we're not seeing a constant flow of the power of God, we're missing something. We are. Stand to your feet. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. It is God's will that he fill us with his glory. That's that's where these things come from. These demonstrations of the spirit and of power and of miracles... They come out of the glory of God. They come out of a church that is so hungry for God's presence that we're not even aware of custom or routine. Sure, we have order in our services. We have a beginning and we have a time to receive an offering. All those things are scriptural. We have a a time for for worship, we have a time for ministry of the word. But we should be so aware of his glory that the form and the formula and the routine sort of dissipates below the, the glory cloud. And we're just caught up in his presence. Amen. It can be greater than it's been. It needs to be greater than it's been. It must be. To meet the cry of this generation, we're going to have to step up as God's people and pray. Glory to God. If you want to see God's glory in this house, this this house, this church, I want you to come down here as just as as an, I know I've done this, I think three Sundays in a row, but that's all right. It's not a ritual either. This is a consecration. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to you, Father. To your full plan. Father, we hunger for everything that is supposed to be in New Testament Christianity. Everything that's supposed to be going on, all of the gifts and manifestations of the Spirit, as the Spirit wills, in His timing, of course. Father, we want, as a church, to be filled with Your glory because we are Your temple. And Your temple was filled with the glory cloud. You dwelt in that temple by your glory in the Old Testament. But God doesn't dwell in temples made with, made with hands. That's never been your purpose. 
Your purpose has been to dwell in us. Father, fill us. Fill us. Fill us with your glory. Fill us with your spirit again, Father. Glory to God. Hallelujah. 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 Glory to God. If you want to pray, pray. Glory to God. Oh, hallelujah. Fill us, Father. Fill us, fill us, fill us with your glory. Hallelujah, hallelujah. A fresh, a fresh filling like in Acts chapter 4. Those who had been filled were refilled. They were filled again with the Spirit of God and they rose up and spoke your word with boldness. They prayed, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal. And we pray the same way. Lord, stretch out your hand to heal and grant that signs and wonders may be done in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Shake us. May we be shaken as they were shaken, Father. May we be filled with boldness as they were. May we be filled with the Spirit as they were afresh, Lord. Glory to God. Father, we shake ourselves as as best we know how. It's best we know what to do as, as, as far as we know. Father, we stir ourselves up, but we're dependent upon you. We cry out to you. We cry out, Father, for the Spirit of God to move among us and in us, Lord, without restraint. If there's anything in the way, if there's anything pre- pre- uh, uh, preventing it, obscuring that and preventing that power, we drive it out in Jesus' name. We repent of it, Father. We'll turn loose of anything and everything that would keep us, keep our eyes off of you, our attention off of Jesus. Our heart turned toward other things more than they should be instead of being turned to the preaching and and sharing of the gospel with those around us. Oh, Father, do in us, Lord, what only you can do. That, we, that that we can't do for ourselves, that's what we're asking for. Father, for you to perfect your work in us. Perfect your work in us, Father. The early church, the first Christians on the day of Pentecost, they weren't mature. They didn't know a lot. They experienced your power and your glory because they were hungry. Father, we... Make up our minds to hunger. It all won't be accomplished at one time. It wasn't accomplished just on the day of Pentecost. It took 10 days and longer for this consecration and this hunger to be worked in them. Father, we submit ourselves to you. We hunger and we present ourselves for more hunger spiritually. Father, that we will have an uh, unrelenting, an insatiable desire for the fullness of the Spirit. Glory to God. We hunger, we hunger, we hunger, Lord. We're hungry. We're hungry for a mighty move of God. Not just here, but in the church. It has to start in the church, at least the church that believes in it. At least the church that, that 
uh, uh, gives witness to it, at least on paper. These things have to be stirred up. We have to take note of our calling, of our heritage, of what belongs to us. And just not be satisfied with anything less than your power and your glory. So we're hungry, hungry, hungry for a move of God in our midst. Move by your spirit, Lord. No, every service, every service won't be the same. But every service should have that fresh touch of your presence. There should be something, Lord, that that is occurring among us every time we meet together. Something that, that comes out of that glory should be in manifestation every time we come together, every time we assemble. Something of that glory, Father, should manifest itself. Whether in demonstrations of the Spirit, demonstrations of worship, all of the demonstrations that we see in the, in the Word of God where people fall under the power of God, where they dance in the Spirit, where there are gifts of the Spirit in manifestation, where there are times, Lord, when, when your holy presence just so settles in and saturates us that we can barely move. We can, we can, we're just so reverent, just so conscious of your presence that we dare not do anything to disturb your glory. That we might not do anything that would get our attention off of you and onto natural things. We leave natural things to come into this house. We leave our natural lives, Father, to assemble together because we're called to leave the natural for a period of time, for a few hours a week. We're called to leave the natural realm and come over into the realm of the Spirit, to be refreshed in the Spirit collectively and corporately as a body, to experience your power and your glory so that we go out into this natural world with a fresh awareness, a fresh equipping, a fresh filling, refilling of your glory and power. Because we're quite aware, Lord, that as we mingle day to day as we go about our natural lives that that we have to be involved in, that the natural realm pulls on us it, di- it distracts us, causes us to be focused on, on necessary things, but it's so easy to lose the awareness of your touch. And that's one reason why you, you call us back together like you do, to refocus us, to refill us, to resaturate us in your presence. Father, we pray that it will always be so that it will be so among us. Oh, Father, that your glory will shape our lives. We should be different when we leave 
a church service. We should be different. There should be a touch of glory upon us. An aroma, a sweet incense. Father, everywhere we go, Father, there, there's an awareness. We, 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 make, we bring an awareness of the things of God. To some, it's an awareness of judgment. To others, it's awareness of your presence. Father, we can't control how people respond, but we are responsible for what we do and how we represent you and how we carry your presence. We are responsible for that. And so, Father, we hunger, we hunger, we hunger, we hunger, we hunger. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area,